0: Welcome to Happiness 2.02 podcast. I'm your host, John Tuckums, founder, author, World Government Summit participant, and Forbes featured TEDx speaker, an inquisitive human who loves rude knowledge. Happiness 2.02 is a mental health show for entrepreneurs that provides the full human cognition and the full breathing oxygen tools to rapidly shift states of mind and increase energy. Podcast guests include organization founders, world renowned executives, MDs, PhDs, and remarkable leaders who have incredible stories and are helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen. You're listening to Happiness 2.02. This is your host, John Tuckums. We're listening to episode six with Dr. James Olds. Jim was the director and CEO of the Krasnow Institute for Advanced Study, was the head of the National Science Foundation's Directorate for Biological Sciences, has managed a billion dollars, has highly cited publications, and is a keynote speaker. While you're listening to this podcast, if anything stands out to you as thought provoking or remarkable, take a screenshot and write down what you've heard from Jim. Post the insight on social media, text the idea to a friend, or email what you've learned to a family member. Get this information out there. Without further ado, a remarkable episode six of Happiness 2.02 podcast recorded in June of 2020 with Dr. James Olds. Jim, time is a finite resource. Underline everything that you do across your life, your leadership, your publications, your speaking engagements. Why do you do what you do? Ultimately, what drives you at your core?
1: Well, it's varied over my life. I started out as a bench scientist. I um, was denied tenure very early on in my career at the National Institutes of Health. So I had to reinvent myself as an executive. And um, that led me to um, run a lot of organizations, both in the private sector and in the public sector. And um, most recently in the last two years, after the 2016 election, to reinvent myself as a benchtop scientist again. So I've come full circle.
0: Oh, absolutely amazing. Uh, in, in terms of, you know, that, that drive towards becoming a scientist, can you share uh, some of your influences from early on, maybe you've been in high school or elementary school, that really helped shape that, uh, that desire to get into, you know, the sciences?
1: Well, my parents were very famous time probably the most famous neuroscientists in, at their time. And so it wasn't too difficult to become a scientist because that's all we talked about at the dinner table. And then eventually I became a neuroscientist. So in a sense, I stayed in the family business. Um, I would say my my career as a uh, as an administrator, ranging from chief executive to dean to running a big chunk of, the National Science Foundation here in the U.S. Um, that's the real differential from, from what my parents did in, in, in their lifetimes. But it's exactly what my grandfather did when he worked for Franklin Roosevelt as president. So, so um, the sort of chapters of my, my career life have, have definitely been shaped by family members.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And from a science perspective, do you remember that first uh, kind of inkling where it's you've been discussed at the, the, dinner table, as you described, uh, but was there a point in time that, because children can often do the opposite of, uh, you know, what the parents are doing that you said, no, this is really what, it, you know, that's, uh, what I'm fascinated in. Uh, do you remember a moment in time that, you know, you translated it from, you know, dinner table talk to say, now I'm going to pursue this as, uh, as, as, part of my studies?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, I wanted to be a political science major at Amherst College, and my parents would have nothing of it, so they forced me to become a chemistry major, and I didn't do particularly well. And when I got out of college, I tried everything I could to rebel, just as as you mentioned. So I I think I trained horses, and I um, was a bartender, and I painted houses, but eventually I ended up in uh, Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And uh, I was invited into a laboratory where um, I was working on sea snails, and um, I got a significant publication out of it for the journal of Science. I didn't even know that that was considered an important publication, a place important venue for publication at the time. But that really clicked for me because my parents did their science on uh, vertebrates, and I was working on sea snails. So there was a big chunk of marine biology and that really clicked for me and it was different enough from my parents. So I got started. Yeah,
0: absolutely amazing. Uh, in, in terms of that, that journey, uh, can you share some of the, the adversities you faced? You talked about, um, you know, you know at, at times you wanted to rebel and then uh, other times uh, you had these tremendous influences in terms of uh, grandparents and parents. Uh, you imagine along the way, uh, you know, there's adversity that you face. Can you share with the audience some of the some of the, the challenges that you overcame to to really define your path sure,
1: so when I was um denied tenure at the National Institutes of Health, I was already um, I was uh, I, I was at the age where I could have been a tenure track professor at, at, at a university, and so that was a pretty devastating blow for me i've been working pretty hard and um, I uh, looked through the adverts in the Chronicle of Higher Education and saw a job offer to be the chief executive of a Scientific Society, and I applied for it on a LARP. And they interviewed me. And um, I remember one of them telling me, you'll never do science again, son, you know that. And uh, I took the job. And uh, it turned out I was pretty good at it. And it, it launched a, a very long and happy administrative career that eventually led to running an organization with a billion dollars worth of, um, of funding. And, um, so that was a, an adverse circumstance that, um, I felt, feel like I turned around. Um, I am so happy though, that, um, I've gotten the chance to, um, restart as a scientist after I left, left the administration here. And, uh, we begin life as a professor, so so that's really nice.
0: That's yeah, absolutely amazing. And that transition from uh, you know kind of uh, academic science based to a, uh, administration. Uh, how did you find that journey? Was it fairly easy for you to translate those skills, or was that a another learning curve in terms of adversity that you had to overcome? It's kind of well, making that transition.
1: I was pretty tech savvy, so that helped, and then. I've never had any problem making a, a command decision quickly and following through and then changing course when circumstances dictate. I think that, that was very useful. But I definitely had to learn a lot, and I made a lot of mistakes along the way. Just um, I had a lot of good luck, and uh, I had some very good staff
0: hmm. um,
1: who helped me along the way. So I was very lucky in that respect. So.
0: And you talked about learning, and you also talked about uh, uh, kind of happiness, uh, you know, kind of coming full circle at this stage. Uh, can you talk about uh, uh, you know, what experiences in life get you to a kind of a pinnacle state or flow states?
1: Well, I am very good in a crisis, like a crisis, like a $100 million crisis, mm-hmm. of and directing actions that are required to make things right. And um, that's definitely puts me into a flow state. And uh, I would say also, when I'm on the trail of a scientific discovery, and I think I've got something figured out, like right now we have, we think we understand how the SARS two virus gets into cells. Wow. At the molecular level. Yep. And we have a hunch. We start doing the experiments, and they start working out. That's very similar type of flow
0: state yeah so it's really those situations where there's a tremendous amount of weight in kind of a crisis situation with uh, big big funds at stake big dollars at stake uh, that uh, you know we can make decisions you know decisively uh, and also with uh, regards to kind of that new discoveries that uh, that pioneering so to speak uh, is figuring out that you know something which uh, no one else has been able to figure out or figuring out a new aspect um, that's absolutely tremendous. Uh, you know, how would you describe that state for the audience? Um, uh, sometimes it's hard to put it into words, you know, that flow state, you know, in terms of your breathing, in terms of your thoughts, um, or just the ability to see further and be, you know, further kind of having further creativity.
1: Well, it, it's not exactly happy, happy. It's more focused, yeah. focused, So I, um, it's, um, it, it's like, like uh, the famous Canadian hockey player could see where the puck was going to be. So there's not a lot of time to enjoy it for its own sake, um, but it's definitely a high performance state of mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely amazing. And uh, when you're in those states, um, in hyper-focus, um, you find that your creativity, uh, what aspects do you, know, do you find in terms of your brain or your, just your being, your physiology, uh, kind of open up in those states?
1: Well, I um it allows me to actually see alternatives to fix the problem that um that weren't weren't even being thought of beforehand. So when we had to rescue the National Ecological Observatory Network or NEON, which is a really big science project here in the States, mm-hmm. in one of those states I figured out that we were gonna have to fire the management organization, and that we could completely recreate the project by uh, essentially building a new management. And um, that was not being thought of instead of sort of the whole federal agency was just sitting in paralysis. Mm. That allowed us to actually hire a very large organization that could do the job, that had plenty of experience building very large things for the U.S. government. And it allowed us to instill a new culture that made it possible to bring that science infrastructure in on schedule and at cost. So um, the thought in the federal U S federal government of actually firing a large entity and getting rid of them, terminating them yep. in order to save a project. That's not typically how, what happens. And oh. so, um, in the end, that that did save the day. It wasn't particularly enjoyable in any way, but it was exactly what eventually needed to be done, so that we now have the instrument that we do have that's commissioned for the next thirty years to bring in scientific data. So that's it. Opens mental doors for you, I'd say.
0: Yeah, absolutely amazing. Uh, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, shifting gears just a little bit, what are some of the small things that you do to maintain happiness, maintain happiness or well-being uh, in your personal life? Uh, you know, Life has its ups and downs uh, in terms of maybe it's to start your day or taking time for a walk. Uh, what are some of the things that uh, you can share with the audience that uh, uh, you incorporate as part of uh, your daily or kind of weekly schedule?
1: Well, I do a lot of science that isn't related to my professional driver's license in science. So I'm yeah. a molecular neuroscientist. But I am now doing a ton of uh, microbiology and a ton of artificial intelligence work. So I focus on the freedom to do science across the whole board of science, and not just in the narrow area where I'm technically proficient at doing science. And that I find that very enjoyable. I, I, I find that actually um, that replaces. A lot of um the tunnel vision you get from doing the same thing your whole life, so that's one thing I do. Another thing I do is um, because I'm a biologist, I back up my study backs up onto a large nature preserve that goes down to the Potomac River, and uh, i I spend a lot of time just looking out the window or walking through the forest, which is right outside, and looking at all the um life forms that are out there, um, not as a scientist. But as, um, as an observer, as a layperson observer, and I find that very enjoyable. Also,
0: fantastic. In, in terms of that, uh, so I understand a little bit further. Um, you know that shift between uh, kind of uh, you know I'm going to say day job, so to speak, and shifting into kind of your personal interests. Um, you know, and is that the kind of that's done after hours on your own time, where you know, is and really talking about opening up the whole board, so to speak. You know, when you're when you're when you're shifting that, is that something you just you read about something and it just grabs your interest, and then you you start pursuing it, uh, maybe on a you know, just to gather information to start with. You kind of share, uh, you know, as as you pick up your, kind of those personal activities which uh, you tremendously enjoy, kind of how that discovery process works. Sometimes,
1: well, um, one of the key things is you choose this job, this way of life of being a scientist or being a chief, and no mm-hmm. one tells you what your time should or should not be spent on. So I've had a lifetime, at least over th- three decades of being able to do exactly what I want, when I want. And I believe that's, that's necessary for my happiness. I couldn't clock in or clock out any job. And uh, I think that means probably that I work more than yep. uh, I would, but it also means that I'll go off and do something that has nothing to do with work at all at any time. Um, so I like having that, that freedom to, to set my own schedule. And then I would say in my day job, it turns out that all of science is connected to all of science. So, you know, the rules of physics uh, certainly underlie all the rules of biology and all the rules of neuroscience. So um, understanding how the brain works is applicable to understanding how artificial intelligence should work. And it's applicable to understanding um, how your microbiome um, in your gut might affect your health. And it's relevant to understanding how atoms interact with one another. So there's a connectivity in all of science that you get to appreciate particularly the older you get that um allows you to see um opportunities where most folks are too busy in their silos
0: that's absolutely amazing and thank you tremendously uh, for sharing that you know this remarkable journey that uh, uh that you're on that uh, you've been able to experience uh, not only kind of the the academic side but you've shifted focus to administrative and now back to sciences you have an incredible range of, uh, you know, insight oversight uh, across those both areas. And now, you know, across your personal interests, coupled with, um, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the day job, so to speak, uh, you have this massive ability to connect the dots, uh, you know, which is absolutely, I would imagine, is a feels like a tremendously creative process.
1: It does. Obviously, it has its frustrations also. Um, the pandemic is both a scientific opportunity It's this is a fascinating virus, but it's a a terrible thing in terms of what's happening to our public health and our societies. So uh, there's ups and downs to everything. And um, I can tell you, I was very proud to be a member of the previous presidential administration, and I was very unhappy to be for a short time in the current administration, and at that point, did everything in my power to leave and, and, and reconstitute myself in academia. So um, what can be great at one time can become awful uh, in mm-hmm. the next instance.
0: Yeah, And you shared that uh, this is a, a fascinating virus. Uh, can you share just a little bit more context uh, related to that? Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more uh, as it relates to, to COVID, uh, if you can share well, some.
1: Sure. I mean, one interesting thing about this virus is that it's awful for some people, and a lot of folks don't have any symptoms at all, all right? And uh, we haven't been able to figure out why some people end up in critical care and die, and others, the virus isn't a problem. My gut feeling is that this virus is much more like HIV-AIDS than it is like pneumonia or the flu. It's screwing around with the patient immune system, mm-hmm. and ultimately it's the, the host immune system which kills people. So understanding that interaction is really important. The other thing about this virus is that it's, it, it's much more than a, a disease. When it, it, with infection, it's much more than a disease of the lungs. It's a disease of the whole body, and we know that this virus can enter immune cells. We know that this virus can enter cardiac cells. And uh, we now know that this virus can enter neurons in the brain, like HIV, AIDS, I I might add. And um, once a virus is in the brain, it is in a privileged, safe compartment uh, from the host immune system, adaptive immune system. So we don't know what's happening when it's hanging out there. In other words, it could be hanging out in the brain like Chingles uh, hangs out in the brain for a long yep. time, waiting for its opportunity. So it's a very unusual virus. Ultimately, a virus is like a virus computer program. Yep. It's a bunch of instructions, and we're trying to reverse engineer from the source code to figure out how to make people better on the fly. And um, it represents a fun scientific challenge, but obviously not one that you actually would choose to face if you had a choice.
0: Mm -hmm. So if if I could uh, just kind of rephrase what you said in a different way and to see if uh, I'm correct, it's almost like a a dormant computer virus potentially housed in the brain. Uh, So it's kind of sitting off to the side in a special compartment. And given certain circumstances inside uh, physiology, chemistry of the body, computations of the body, all of a sudden it can almost, uh, you know, in that dormant state, it's, it's activated or just a certain trigger, uh, you know, a, you know, suppressed immune system or a weakened immune system, uh, you know, can activate itself to its fullest potential, so to speak.
1: Well, that's, that's a big worry. That's certainly a big worry, but we, we don't know for sure that it hangs out in the nervous system. We definitely know that it can enter neurons and yeah. hang out in neurons. Um, so, so that's, That's a big mystery. The other thing I would say is um, we know that there are very few individuals who are super spreaders and that most people with COVID-19 do not spread the virus. So that's very weird. And that produces these very strange characteristics of how the virus viral growth occurs. And, uh, you know, we can spot the virus in sewage and, and, and in water, just not in the quantities or not intact to cause infection, but certainly enough for us to actually start to do some predictions on where the virus is going to be next. Mm-hmm. So There's a lot going on in a lot of us around the world that are working pretty much 24-7 on it. My own particular aspect of this virus is looking at how smoking and nicotine interacts with the virus. It turns out that the receptor for nicotine in the brain is crucial for um, motor movement, and that's why mm-hmm. nerve gas and various toxin poisons from, from animals cause us to be paralyzed because they attack that receptor. And uh, rabies virus also binds directly to that receptor, the receptor for nicotine in the mm-hmm. brain, the peripheral nervous system. And we think this virus, this new virus is using an adapter protein to actually connect to the same mechanism that rabies uses. And uh, basically, it's a conserved site of entry into human beings and all sorts of other animals. And um, so there, there's been a long coevolution between viruses and their targets. And that's what we're trying to wrestle with in our group.
0: Yeah. I understand that you've, uh, you've launched some papers, too, as well, uh, you know, related to, to nicotine. Uh, do you want to uh, delve in a little bit further uh, uh, into the papers, uh, just to provide some additional kind of context to the audience?
1: Well, it was clear pretty quickly that there was a connection between smoking and infection with SARS-2 coronavirus. And uh, the question is, you know, it's out there and up for debate what's the case does smoking protect you from this virus or does smoking actually enhance the virus infection and i think that debate is going on in the scientific world right now and it's not clear how it's going to shake out but we absolutely do know that there's something some detective-like connection you know if i was a detective looking for Mm -hmm. a criminal there's a connection between the receptor for nicotine and this virus that is crucial in determining what the clinical outcome is gonna be. And so our papers have been aimed at this particular problem and our current experiments, both in the laboratory and on the US's biggest supercomputers are aimed at actually uh, looking at this molecular mechanism. And um, we think we're on to something because if we're right, then there are all sorts of new therapeutic targets uh, that offer themselves up for treatment of COVID-19.
0: Absolutely amazing. And that's, you know, and really that's opening up a kind of new potential for treatments, uh, you know, to slow it or perhaps even solve. Is, is that safe to say, or is it? Uh, well,
1: I would say those of us who are looking for vaccines are looking to cure it mm-hmm. or prevent COVID-19. Our group and, and bunches of other scientists around the world are looking also for cocktails of drugs that may, will make the, the disease not a death sentence and manageable. So HIV, we don't have a vaccine for HIV-AIDS, but we manage it, right? It's not a death sentence. So what our team is working on is coming up with a cocktail of drugs that make COVID-19 into a manageable situation and avoid it. The, the bad clinical outcomes that we're seeing with so many, so many folks.
0: Absolutely amazing. Can um, you, you talk a little bit more about uh, the COVID paper? Is there any other details that you want to share? Uh, we talked about the uh, the nicotine paper, um, just as it relates to the the COVID uh, paper as well. Maybe um, sharing about kind of uh, the scale of the teams that you're working with. You know, as, Our, team as extent- get-
1: Our team extends from Australia to here in Washington, D.C., And so we're working pretty much 24-7. And um, right now, our team is working on, as I speak, benchtop experiments where we're actually visualizing the interaction between the receptor for the virus, which is a a protein called angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. We call it ACE2 in the business. And nicotine receptor. And we're actually looking through a very high-performance microscope in living cells at these two molecules actually interacting with one another, and interacting with one another under circumstances that mimic what actually would happen if the virus was bound to its receptor. So that's what's going on uh, in terms of our, our wet lab experiments. In our supercomputer experiments, we're actually visualizing this molecular interaction where each atom of each of the proteins that's interacting so this is a extraordinarily large-scale simulation is modeled in three dimensions as the molecules come together and then re- re- reform their three dimensional shape essentially refold in order to chemically interact with one another and allow for viral entry and yeah. it's really interesting because the supercomputer experiments suggest that what's happening with the virus and its business end, which is called the spike protein, is very similar to what happens when a toxin from a snake bite or from some venomous animal interacts with the same protein. So toxins from venom in our virus are actually using the same chemical mechanism as a gateway, as a ticket into the body. And we're showing that in wet lab experiments, and we're also showing that in supercomputer experiments and the supercomputer experiments inform our thinking because we can look at the visualization, um, and they inform our thinking. And then we go into the wet lab and perform the experiments to show that's actually what's happened.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. And can you share some sense of the audience? Like just the, you know, the feeling of being inside that room when you have people from literally all around the world, from Australia through to Washington, uh, being a part of these you know, think tank sessions. Uh, where you've run the super, uh, supercomputer, super you know, you're seeing firsthand in the, the wet lab and you just share what that feels like. And, you know, you talked about working 24 uh, seven and imagine there's just a tremendous energy with inside of those uh, environments.
1: So when you're looking at the results from a very high performance microscope, you're usually in a darkened room Yep. And You're not actually looking through the microscope. We don't do that anymore. You're looking at a very large computer screen that is computer controlled with lasers. And the microscope, these microscopes typically cost as much as, say, a Lamborghini sports car. But the microscope is sitting there and is running robotically. And you're looking at the output on a darkened computer screen. And it's in living color. It's, It's incredibly uh, so you see reds and greens and blues jumping out of the screen at you, and you're actually watching the molecules dock in real time Wow so that's very exciting and uh, I actually uh was there at the beginning when this type of microscopy started to take off so it, it's a powerful tool, and it um, I would think is most similar to what people imagine being um uh at the side of a telescope when the telescope points at something, some new astronomical object and, and uh, folks around the screen get to see it for the first time. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's very exciting.
0: Yeah. And so just to, uh, just to capture what you said, you were actually involved early on with the development of this technology. Now you can see it applied on a, a global, you know, global crisis, a global p- pandemic. Is that safe to say?
1: Yes. Yes. Wow.
0: Absolutely. Amazing. Jim, where can people find your work? How can people find your work or, or find you? Uh, Jim-Olds.com. Perfect. Uh, are there any parting words for the audience that uh, you want to share? Uh, just in terms of um, you know the evolution that you've seen across your your you know your academic life to uh, moving into administration and, and back to. Um, core sciences, you know, a lot of people have to make decisions and they often don't get a chance to choose between the two of them. Uh, Do you have any kind of parting words uh, in order to maintain happiness, well-being across their life? You got to be able to make a decision and it may not be the right
1: decision. So you may have to course correct, but you have to be able to make decisions that are command decisions and follow through on them because otherwise you'll have paralysis. And dynamic organizations can't, can't thrive when you have paralysis. So it's, it is crucial to um, grow the ability to make those decisions, not be burdened by them. Look carefully at the results. If they go awry, say I was wrong and change course. Take responsibility for, for things going awry when they do. But, but that's the way to get things done.
0: Uh, Jim, thank you for your leadership, your publications, and all the happiness oxygen you bring to the world. And a tremendous thank you to all the listeners. As always, this has been your host, John Teckhams you have made it to the end of the podcast, it's your host John Tuckums. I want to take this moment to sincerely thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the time you are taking to invest in your life. And if you gain something valuable from this episode and want to give me value somehow, I would tremendously appreciate if you went to Apple Podcasts, iTunes. If you have an Apple product where you listen to this podcast and leave this show a review, you are free to send me a message or email. Contact information is in the description below. Thank you again for listening and thank you for your contributions in helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen.